30 years ago, Jeffrey Moore published an iconic book titled Crossing the Chasm. That book became required reading for product leaders and CEOs alike as the definitive guide for taking tech products to market. Six years ago, Jeffrey Moore published a book titled Zone to Win. Now, as legacy technology companies face disruption from new as-a-service business models, this is the book that tech executives need to have on their bedstand. Because navigating a business model transformation is proving to be a hard chasm to cross. I am Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association. Welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. And in this episode, I have Jeffrey Moore himself here with me to discuss his Zone to Win framework and why we both strongly believe this is the winning approach when navigating business model transformation. And for those listeners not familiar with TSIA, we are a for-profit research institute. We track the financial performance of the largest publicly traded technology providers on the planet. More importantly, we perform deep operational benchmarking with the technology companies that are on the TSIA platform. It is that data that informs the insights you will hear in this series. So let's get into it. Jeff, welcome to Tectonic. It's great to see you again, at least virtually. Uh, before we talk about Zone to Win, uh, what have you been up to since the world changed? Since the world changed, we have it from my <laughs> office for the last 18 months. Well, let's see. So the, the, the Zone to Win advisory business has been an important thing. Uh, as people read the book and they say, okay, we think we're going to implement this. Come in here and help us work through this. That's been enormous, enormously rewarding. I'm sure we'll talk a bit about that. I'm also a partner at Wildcat Venture Partners, which came out of more David now as, a, as, a, as the next generation venture fund. We're going to just be raising a crossing the chasm fund coming up. So that's going to be kind of fun. We're oh, wow. Only invest in chasm crossing situations in our thesis area. So that's going to be pretty exciting. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think yeah. it'll be good. And then finally, I actually came out with another new book uh, called The Infinite Staircase. Um, the subtitle is What the Universe Tells Us About Life, Ethics, and Mortality. It's sort of like operational benchmarking for the earth. <laughs> so oh, wow. That's sort of a philosophical uh, legacy book that, I, that I'm very, you know, I obviously care about a ton, but yeah. we should probably get back to the things that are more on the table. With, with well, this well that's awesome. And so, so that latest book, is it already out there? Or is it yes, it's out, out there. It's available. And then there's a whole website and we've got a blog and people can contribute to the dialogue if they want to. It's Oh, that's fun. great. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, I'm glad you, you continue to expand your horizons there. <laughs> so this, this, Zone to Win, that book is about how to organize a company to support you know, significant transformation. And I'm curious, what was the catalyst for, for writing that book? Was it inspired by a specific company or what was the deal there? It, it, yeah, it turned out there were, it, the, it was kicked off by a project that Mark Benioff asked me to do at, at Salesforce because he, he felt like you know, they weren't getting the traction on the new stuff that he wanted. We spent a bunch of time together. And then in the middle of that or somewhere along the line, uh, Microsoft reached out and I ended up doing working with both companies in parallel, mm -hmm. which was really, really instructive because they had they had they were mirror images of each other's problems. So in the case of Salesforce, they were innovative, they could be transformative, they could incubate new things. I told them, I said, you guys are amazing at being extraordinary. You're not very good at being ordinary. 
And so what they had to work on was actually their core business performance zone and productivity zone. Keith Block was sitting in the room. He hadn't actually joined the company at the time, but he came in and, and they wanted to establish a whole enterprise thing. So that was sort of on one side, the innovators who, who needed to actually just kind of maybe grow up and yeah, just, yeah. you know, be a little bit more formal. Microsoft was the opposite problem. At Microsoft, they, they just crushed the core business, the performance zone and the, and the, and the productivity zone. But they were really struggling on the incubation and transformation side. And I remember a really great conversation uh, with Satya had the whole team together and Amy Hood, who's their CFO, was there. And I said, you know, Amy, all of your annual planning metrics are performance metrics. You don't have any power metrics. And we had this discussion about, well, power, what are power metrics and how are they different from performance metrics? But power metrics are, are the metrics you use in incubation and transformation mm -hmm. because you're trying to become more powerful in order to then transition to the performance zone where you can perform. Right. But if all you do is measure performance metrics and you never measure power metrics, basically you harvest, you essentially cash out all of your power until you're out. Yeah. <laughs> and they were at risk at doing that. And to the credit of both companies, they both kind of took what they wanted from the models and they're great CEOs. They would have gotten there without me, but I like to take a little credit. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Well, and, I, and again, I think it's that vantage point of when you get to see different companies, right? And, and as you see across, you start to see that pattern recognition. I mean, I, to me, there, there's no greater joy in life, you know, in terms of when you start to see those patterns and you're able to really frame them in, you know, for companies and then help other companies by, by doing that. So I, I think that's fantastic. And, and, and before you describe sort of the core framework in the book, which is I want to make sure we get this on the table, um, you know, let me just comment on the main use case that I see today for, for this content. So, so we have many TSI members that have been selling technology products for, for a long time, right? And they've been very successful. And, and now these customers are demanding new buying models, right? They, they want to buy technology as a service. They, they, they want to pay as they go, et cetera. And, and if you think about a company like you know, HPE that has been selling boxes forever, right? Now offering something called GreenLake, which is a consumption-based as a service offer. And, and when this happens, companies are being forced to change their fundamental business model. And they are migrating from a business model based on transactional revenues to one based on recurring revenues. And this is massive change. And because the, org the organizational structure is optimized to manage transactional revenues. And, and so when a company faces a significant shift in the business model, you have a pretty detailed prescription for how they should organize for success. So, so can you provide that, that overview of that framework in the book? Yeah, and, and let me start by saying, because I want to kind of frame the problem the way you framed it. We have a little, you know, if you're a consultant, you either have two by two matrices or triangles. That's a bet. That's all the graphics they teach you. So this one is a triangle. A triangle has a top, a middle, and a bottom. Right. And the top is business model. And the idea is when you change business models, that's going to cascade down to a completely new operating model, which is going to cascade down to a completely different infrastructure model. And the reason why I mention that is a lot of when we talk about digital transformation, people tend to gravitate toward the infrastructure model. Right. But they but they got to realize, yeah, but that's in service to a new operating model, which is in service to a new business model. And I actually think it's the operating model that's the thing where all the inertial momentum that, that resists change is coming from. Because mm -hmm. zone to win is really an organizational design around an operating model. And basically all it says is, look, if you are one of these legacy companies, you have a core business. This is feeding the beast. It's paying the bills. It's, it's paying the bills. It's everything. And it wants investment. I mean, it's not like it's, it, it, it's a cash cow. It wants investment. And it's not just money. It wants talent and attention and 
ecosystem relationships and all kinds of things. And as long as innovation is essentially aligned with the core business, you're fine. So, so Google and Facebook and Amazon have been growing pretty without a lot of hiccups to date because by and large, their new businesses either were so far afield that they didn't really interfere with the core business or they were aligned with the core business and kind of amplified it. Mm-hmm. But, but sooner or later, you come to a situation where the new business model is anti- it, antithetical is probably too strong a word, but it's disruptive to and potentially cannibalistic of yes. your core business. And now what you have is you have this conflicted problem and, and you're, you're inherently conflicted. And, and if, you, if you're a startup, you're not because the startup only has the new business model. But if you're a legacy, you've got both. So how do you, how do you deal with that in a principled way? So what we said was four zones, two zones for the core business, the performance zone and the productivity zone. Performance zone, that's the one that makes the number every quarter. It's the one that the earnings analyst you talk about you know, in your quarterly earnings call, everybody gets that one. Productivity zone, all the cost centers behind the scenes that support the performance zone. Finance, HR, IT, secure, cybersecurity, facilities, marketing, customers, and anything you don't charge the customer for. And that's the core business and it's 90% plus of, of the budget. And it's, it's where all the operational focus of the company is. Okay, now we see the next wave. We're not stupid. We, we know it's coming either because a competitor has brought it to our door or we think maybe it's one we could, we could grab onto ourselves. But either way, we say, okay, we want to develop that. It's clear that the governance model for the performance zone does not apply. This thing is not at scale. We're not trying to harvest it. We're not trying to make money from it. We're just trying to figure. So we're not going to use the performance zone model. It's also interesting. The processes from the productivity zone also are not fit for purpose because they're designed to support scaled operations with you know steady as you go, measure twice, cut once. We're over here mm-hmm. trying to figure out product market fit. We don't even mm-hmm. we don't know what the hell's going on, right? So everybody right. kind of gets that you can't use those models. So that so and by the way, most companies do sequester their incubation efforts off to the side. The first mistake they make is because they know that the performance zone model governance model is wrong, because they know the productivity zone mo- governance model is wrong, they say no governance model. That's wrong too. Okay? Mm-hmm. You need a governance model, and the and and the right model is the venture capital governance model, not the financial model, but the governance model. So the incubation zone is a zone where you set up a venture capital operating model, not financial operating model. But you fund startups. You worry about getting to minimum viable product. You worry about crossing chasms. You worry about all the things that venture capitalists worry about, and you measure everything by power metrics, not performance metrics. So sales matter, but not because $10 million of sales manages to manage means right. anything to Delta. Yeah, it's a rounding error. It, right. Exactly. But the fact that you've got $10 million from competitive situations and customers paid you that money is a signal, hey, you might be onto something. Mm-hmm. And so you want those market signals. So you're, just like a venture capitalist, you keep on looking for those signals. You fund it like venture capital. You fund to the next milestone. You do not fund during the annual planning process. No venture capitalist ever funded anything annually. But of course, corporations want to do it because that's their process. The productivity Mm -hmm. zone has their process, right? It's like, God bless you, but not for the incubation zone. Fund the zone annually, but then have a group inside the zone that does your funding. So those three zones, we work a bunch to get set up. And it's interesting, each company, I've worked out maybe with 10 or 15 companies doing this. It's interesting, often the zone they think is the problem is not actually the first problem to address. Mm. They They often have a problem someplace else that they have to address first. Interesting. And, and so, but, but anyway, using those three governance models, we do it. And then uh, we get to this notion of transformation, meaning 
I have something in the incubation zone. It's ready for prime. Well, it is time to take it to prime time. To say it's ready is a little bit of a, of a misnomer because it's still young. It's not, it's not right. anything like what you're used to. But the world is sort of saying, hey, it's now or never. So come on. And so there's a couple of ways you can do that. If you can bolt it onto your core business, that's by far the lowest risk thing. It doesn't, it doesn't change your footprint that much, but you're in the game. Your customers say, hey, you're making progress. This, this, this is good. We'll stick with you. But a lot of times it's like, no, I really do have to rip the Band-Aid off and create a whole new structure. That's what the transformation zone is about. And this is, this is kind of the come to Jesus time for the CEO, because you're about to undertake something that everybody's going to second guess you for for the rest of your life. Right. So, right. But, but the point is, if you don't, nobody else can. Because what you have to do in a transformation is tell every organization in the enterprise, I am adjusting your priorities. Transformation is the number one priority. And everything that you had as your number one priority is number two. And your number two is now number three. And your number three is now number four. And by the way, when we, when we budget, we're going to fund this zone first. And we're going to fund it until it, if there's not a dollar that we can't use there. And then we'll figure out what to do with the rest. And it will play hell with your performance comp. It will play hell with all the things you're used to. Yeah, this is and very I'm, unpopular. This is very, very unpopular. Very, very unpopular. But, but and so who does it? People that are good at being unpopular. Elon Musk, he's terrific at being unpopular. <laughs> Stephen Jobs, fabulous. Larry Ellison, <laughs> gifted at being unpopular. <laughs> and anybody who wants to be popular should run for student body president and not be the CEO. Right. So those right. are the four zones. Those are the four so those zones. are the zones. And, 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 and so, you know, first of all, I just want to emphasize, you know, how spot on I think that that approach is to accelerating you know, really big business model transformation. And, that, and that's what's on the table here. It's when you do have to stand up that transformation zone and really lean into it because it is the future, you know, of the company. And when, when I see TSI member companies implement this approach, when they're standing up their, their new as a service business models, which really represent their future, right? If you're, if you're HPE, that's your future. At Microsoft, you know, that's their future. And so, so you know, when they do that, I see real progress. But, but when they attempt to basically run the new and the old through the same management stack, right? I just, I don't see, it's painful, you know, period. I just do not see real progress there. Well, what's happening is, look, for so many years, you, you, you came to power as both personally and organizationally on the back of the performance zone being supported by the productivity zone. So mm -hmm. all of your leaders tend to come from those two zones. And they have, they're enormously invested in the governance model that made them successful for their whole career. And, and so they want to apply that model to everything else. One of the principles of zone management is, first of all, embrace your zone and honor the other three zones. Right. What's happening is they're not honoring the other three zones and, they're not, and they will not deprioritize their zone no matter what. Right. And so at some point, you have to be able to deprioritize your zone. Every zone at some point has to realize, first of all, the transformation zone has to realize one transformation a decade is probably about all any corporation can do. Oh, absolutely. So understand that we don't want this transformation zone going on all the time. No, no, absolutely not. Exactly. And so every zone has to be able to say, have their day in the sun, but also their day where they have to pull back. You see a lot of companies not being able to do that. You also see, by the way, boards of directors who say, well, you know, we hired you to improve our shareholder value. If you execute this plan, our stock will go down, not up. You right. can put our corporation in play, by the way, all of which is, is true. But yeah. to your point, 
if the purpose of an enterprise is to serve its customers, and if the customers are saying, this is our future together, right. at some point you say, look, I have to follow my, my customers have to be at the center of this thing and everything else has to evolve from there. A couple things, you know, on that, I mean, like we said, the transformation zone is rarely in play, right? But when it's in play, it's because it is the future of the company. And the alternative, you know, when I say to a lot of these companies, I borrow this phrase from the CEO from Delta, because somebody asked him, you know, what's your plans on growth? That's a pretty mature industry. This is pre-COVID. But he said, look, you know, if you're not growing, you're in slow motion liquidation. And I, and I think that that's what a lot of legacy tech companies are facing, these alternatives. You, say you can try to prop up in the short term. You can try to protect EBITDA or prop up your stock price, but you are in slow motion liquidation. You've got to really lean into this. And then there's all this resistance. And in one of the, you, you were talking about respecting the zones. And one of the toughest things I see is that you know, companies do not want to basically take from the legacy BUs you know, to fund the, the transformation to you, right? To, to fund the new, there's just so much power, right? right. It's, it's around the legacy and, and right. executives, et cetera. And they're like, no, you're not touching my, you know, my right. budget, you know, et cetera. So, so you mentioned the fact that, you know, this funding model, I mean, it sounds like, you know, one of the tactics is you, you really do have to say, look, the transformation zone gets funded first. It's got to in this well, model. And what you're describing is so important. I call it uh, when a zone holds the other zones hostage. Yeah. So there's two classic hostages. The performance zone will say, my salespeople, my accounts, I'm funding this thing. I'm going to hold everybody hostage to my way or the highway. And, and, uh, and you have to do it my way. And, and so and I see a lot of performance zone executives who hold their companies hostage. And yes. what that means is, you said slow motion liquidation. I would say harvesting our power without re replenishing it. So one of the ways to hold a performance zone accountable, say, guys, you're not replenishing your power. You're, all you're do, you, you are, you're cashing out our brand one quarter at a time. So that, that's right. number one. The productivity zone people are, are subtler, but it's the same hostage thing. You have to meet these operating ratios. You have to meet these contribution margins. We have to hit this, the, 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 these, these, these metrics. Again, in support of an existing business, yes, but with disruption, no. And, and so, and if you try to solve these problems internally by essentially negotiating with each other across the table, it, it doesn't work because it's just, there's just too much, there's too much history and power dynamics and whatever. So how do you solve it? The two companies, I think Salesforce and Microsoft are iconic examples of the two ways to solve. You either focus like crazy on a competitor or you focus like crazy on a customer. But in either case, get out of your own way because if you focus internally, you will talk yourself out of it every single time. But if you say my customer won't allow me to get away with this, or if you say my competitor won't allow me. So with, with Microsoft was gifted with the competition of Azure of, of Amazon Web Services. Yep. And 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 that forced them to, to and they, by the way, they used that and look at what they've done. You know, and, and Salesforce was gifted with the competitor of Marketo and Adobe. And look what they've done. Yeah. But, but, but I would say to be fair to Salesforce, it was more about their customer was saying, well, I have sales and service, but I need marketing too. Come on, this is supposed to be CRM. It's got to be a, a suite. So yeah. I think they're driven more by serving the customer. And I think Microsoft is driven more by winning against a competitor. But either way, they don't focus on themselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, so I mean, this is a great thought, right? Because, because again, I think what we both see is there's a lot of resistance to structuring correctly here. There's a lot of you know resistance to doing 
you know, to, to, to breaking the glass that has to be broken to support the transformation zone. So, you know, one winning tactic here is, is you have to fund the transformation zone first. You have to make it a priority. It can't be getting leftovers. It's, it's going to wither. I think a set, I love this tactic that, that the main, as you do going through this transformation, the main focal point has to be a customer or a competitor, not your internal, you know, I, I was on a, on a call with a company about six weeks ago and we were talking about, you know, again, standing up as a service, you know, business models, et cetera. And they said, well, you, you know, Thomas, you just don't understand, you know, our, our systems just aren't set up for this. So that, that was their answer why they couldn't do this. Their that's internal the systems that's, that's the weren't set up to do zone holding you hostage. Right. right. And they said, you don't get it. And, and I said, you know, I got to tell you, I, I don't think your customers really care that your, bill, <laughs> that your billing systems are not set up. But, and they aren't. And by the way, they are not. And, right. and you and I both know that those billing systems and systems of record, we usually call them, yeah. they are 30, they could be 30 years old. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I, I have all kinds of empathy, but but the point being, you know, there's a wonderful, uh, Edward Deming is this, so there's a quote associated with him, which is, uh, change is not necessary because survival is not mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> and it's oh, like, I okay. It. I, I, yeah. so, but, but I'm gonna you, use that one. <laughs> But I'm if, definitely using that one. So I do. Th I, I, there's another piece of this equation where I think is important. It's more the soft, soft, soft stuff than the hard stuff, but it's really important. And that's narrative. You have to be able to tell a story. First of all, there's a story for your employees. There's a story for your customers. But probably most importantly, initially, there's a story for your investors and for Wall Street. And if you, if you let the spreadsheet analysts at Wall Street control your future, they're going to play by the old, you know, steady as she goes rules. Bezos was a great narrative. Musk was a great narrative. Steve was a great narrative. Getting your board aligned with you so that your board and you are aligned that this is the right thing to do. And then it's like, well, we're going to do it. Well, you know, we're working on a new book about, you know, again, these case studies on this transformation. And there's an appendix there on the role of the board during business model transformation. And, and, I, and I wrote that appendix, Jamie and I were working on it. And you know, so I was just looking at case studies of companies that have been successful with transformation. And what you often see is they will bring in one or two board members that understand the new models. Yes. So your board can't be stacked with people that understand the old model. So, so you've got to get alignment there. And then you're right. You're saying, look, you know, we're not going to be about EBITDA in the short term. And, and it's not about the performance metrics. It's the power metrics. And, and that's, you know, we, we have to align as a management team and a board. And then the other thing you see very consistently is the CEO, CFO, the way they tell the story to, you know, to Wall Street when they're going through the transformation. They speak the new language. Yes. They focus a bright light on yes. the new business model yes. and what success looks like there, not, you know, here's our renewal rates on support contracts or here's how many units we shipped. They start exposing new metrics because one of the people, one of the reasons people have sort of jaundiced view of transformation is they don't think it's an accountable discipline. They think it's just like you're getting away with murder, right? Right. So what's important to do, like uh, I, I've been doing working with a company called F5, who I, I love. Oh yeah, yeah, another terrific great company. company. Love mm -hmm. Francois, uh, who's their yep. CEO. But but you watch their earnings call narratives over the last several years. And they, they started exposing the, the vision and then they started exposing metrics. Like uh, what percentage of revenue is coming from recurring revenue? What's, what's coming from software versus hardware? You know, how, how are we playing these games? And so, you know, when you do that, you're, you're trying to bring your investors along. And what will happen is the value investors will leave. 
the value investors yeah. would say, okay, they're going off into a J curve. I, I, I know this is my, my ticket to leave. <laughs> right. But growth investors are now going, well, wait a minute. There's a growth story here if they can make it work. And then they start pressure testing you pretty good because they want to know, are you going to really do this or is this just a head fake? Right, that's right. And, and, and so, but if you're really going to do it, then there's a, there's a new cadre of investors who are going, well, we want, we want to go with you. Well, so let me put two things on the table related to what you just said. So, so you know, first of all, with the investors, that's the conversation JB and I have all the time is what if the investors you have are not the investors that you need or want? <laughs> so if you have value investors and what you really want is growth investors, that's a, that's a, you know, that's a big shift, right? That, that companies have to navigate. Let's just, let's just stop for a second. That's no. why Michael Dell took Dell private, right? He needed to change his, and by the way, that is one way you can do it, which is right. to, and there, it, there are increasingly, because one of the good news is about the current financial markets, we'll see how long it lasts, is that they are over cap, there's, there's a lot of capital on the sidelines that wants to put itself in the right. right. And so private equity, which used to be much more of a, you know, tidy up the balance sheet, put lipstick on the pig and sell it to the next guy. Yep. Now saying, no, we genuinely want to support growth. But you do have to get, yeah, you cannot, your investors can hold you hostage just the way anybody else can hold you hostage. Yeah. Remember, competitors and customers are the only, only two constituencies that will tell you the truth. <laughs> and I just have to quickly comment on the whole PE play because I, again, having seen many member companies been taken private, you know, as this, you know, this, again, this whole shift in the tech business models has been unfolding for a decade now. And I think, you know, my, my observation is early on, the PE firms were looking for the quick play. You know, they took a software company, like, hey, we're going to make them a SaaS company. They, they had a great install base. They're a little fat. We're going to trim the fat. Three years, I'm going to flow. You know, most of those companies are not back out right. yet because they didn't realize that it was, you know, it was not a three-year transformation. It's a five-year transformation. So, so now the PE firms, I think, have battle scars around it and they're coming in, you know, with more eyes wide open, which is good. They need to, right, if this is going to be successful. So I think that's, you're right, been an evolution yep. in there. They're thinking, but, you know, but back to these, you know, success tactics and, and these communications. So, you know, we have this model called swallowing the fish, right? And, and the phases a company has to go through financially, you know, when they're going through business model transformation. And the first phase is align, align management team, align the board. Then you announce, like you said, to the street, right? Then you demonstrate that you can actually make progress on the new model. And then you declare victory. Now I'm telling you, what we see is those first two phases get flipped. And companies are constantly announcing, we're, we're going into as a service, yeah, yeah, we're doing, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, we're yeah, going to be yeah, a SaaS yeah, company, yeah, we're, yeah. it's going to be great. Yeah. And then they're not aligned. No. So they are not set up, they're not structured like we're talking about, they don't have the right, you know, structure in play, they don't have a transformation zone. And then, so they cannot demonstrate progress. So they, you know, they get six months, a year into it and investors like, you know, you know and, the, and the stock then is tanking. So we keep saying, look, You've got a line. Well, how long does it take to align? It can take a year or two years. It's actually not so much time. What alignment often requires is for you to remove one or more executives who are been iconic and anchor executors for you, but they will they they are holding the company hostage. And by their own lights, they think they're doing the right thing. So you're not you're not going to reform them and you have to fire them. And if, by the way, if you look at the management teams of the companies that have been successful. You will see, I mean, really, really heavyweight leaders were essentially expelled and they had to be expelled because in order to get to the next place. But again, we talk about the, the courage required to be a CEO. You know, CEO sounds like such a neat idea. Would you like to be a CEO? And the answer is, if you're not transforming, you bet I'd like to be the CEO. I don't like it. not to like, but honest to God, when the transformation uh, stuff hits the fan, 
It, this is the hardest job on the planet. And no matter how much they pay you, if you're successful, they didn't pay you enough. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's just, it's that hard. Oh, it's the lifeblood of the company is what, you know, the future of the company that you're, you're navigating for sure. One thing I want to ask you, you know, around these zones, right? Because it, it ultimately is, you know, again, you have, you have companies, you have part of the company that is paying the bills with the legacy, you know, products and offers, et cetera. And then you have this in the transformation zone, you know, we have this new stack, right? That is, that is really incubating and growing the new. And, and often they're going to market, you know, side by side, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're migrating an install base often. And so, you know, one of the things we coach people is, you know, you really want to be smart about your market segmentation. You don't want it to be the wild, wild west out there. But the other thing is, because you mentioned the term narrative, Right. So the internal narrative, you know, as companies are navigating, moving, you know, growing this new, you don't want people in the productivity zone to be disenfranchised, right? To feel like, hey, you're just working on old stuff that nobody cares about. And and, and that's not true because again, that stuff doesn't go away tomorrow. <laughs> right. They are typically paying the bills for the company that, you know, for some time to come. So what, you know, what narrative have you seen works there? Really important. You yeah. know, yeah. I, th- I think uh, this is where the productivity zone actually is actually going to be the hero rather than the goat. So, so what the productivity zone is normally doing most of the time is maintaining systems and systems are designed to maintain state, to allow the company to, to run at scale and to run productively and comply with the law and be more efficient, et cetera. When you have a disruption hit the company, the productivity zone now has a second agenda, which is we want you to run programs which are designed to change state. You, you, in other words, we mm-hmm. need to re- pull resources from your zone to help us remodel customer support to customer success, uh, you know, brochureware to, to digital marketing. Those are productivity zone initiatives, but they're productivity zone initiatives around dramatic change and, and in yep. fact, the productivity zone is the only zone that has resources that can do that. Now, what you have to do then in the productivity zone is you've got to separate your budget into systems versus programs because you still got to keep the lights on, but right. you got to right. move more money. And, and by the way, the, the kinds of leaders you have, the, the success metrics you have, everything is different between those two things. Yep. Same thing with human capital. You have your classic HR you know, review compliance but then you've got this talent development. How do I engage the new talent base? So every one of those functions, IT, you got to run your, your SAP or Oracle back office, but oh gosh, you got, where, where's the machine learning? Where's the AI? And so everybody, and, and, and I think people have to realize the productivity zone is actually the key to success if you can activate it. But historically, we've always sort of said, no, just mm-hmm. do more with less. And that's, that's been what the problem's been. Yep. And let's talk a little about the dynamics and the performance zone and the transformation zone. So the performance zone, and, and let's just say that your traditional go-to-market stack is there and your, your, your traditional, your existing sales force is there, right? Who own the customers on it and they're set, they've been selling your, you know, your, your traditional stuff for years. And now you have this new transformational offer often again with a completely different go-to-market stack there, right? You know, different salespeople, et cetera. And again, we see this, this tension as well, right? The performance zone is like, hey, my customers, right? My, my decision. Zone parochialism or territoriality, which is, again, if you stay internally focused, only increases, you know, in sharp elbows or whatever. It's another version of holding your corporation hostage. So that's not okay. But to be fair to the performance zone, the performance zone is supposed to deliver the number. So first of all, the first thing you cannot ask the performance zone to do is deal with anything that is subscale. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not going to be 10% or more of my number. Don't put it in my zone. Completely agree. Completely and agree. So, that, so, so that means the, the corollary to that is, okay, well, then we have to take sales resources and SEs and, and field resources and, and engineers 
and we're gonna we're gonna move them out of the performance zone and put them in the incubation. Completely zone. agree. Yeah, that's, that's yep. correct. We have to do that. So that's that's number one. Then number two is when the transformation hits, we have to realize the person that hurts the most is the performance zone. Mm -hmm. Because now they're going to say, I want you to take a subscale initiative and treat it as if it were scale. Yeah. And to, to do that, one of the places we goof up, we don't change the performance compensation system. So you're, if you don't, you're asking a, an executive or a, a middle manager to actually work against their own performance comp <laughs> in order right. to achieve the strategic objective. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay. So, so again, you, you, we've got to be very thoughtful about performance compensation and have two kinds of performance compensation. Yep, These are solvable problems if we, if we just step back and realize they're going to touch every system in the productivity zone in some way. Yeah, yeah. And, and the notion that somehow the, that we can get along with the old stack, no, but we can run two stacks and you have to. You're running two stacks in parallel and it's a little bit like you know driving a clutch car for those of you who are old enough to remember what that's like because you, you don't want to pop the clutch. You want to, you want to bring it in as best you can. But there's a, there's a time when you're, you're, you're jerking back and forth. Absolutely. That's the way it's going to be. Yeah, that is the way it's going to be. And, and I think you said a very important thing that you know these challenges are solvable. And I completely agree with that. I mean, I, I think that these are tough management problems you know, when you're going through transformation, not easy. Uh, you know, not for the, you know, the weak hearted here, but they are solvable if you structure correctly, right? Again, if you create these zones, you set them up, you fund them correctly, you get them to focus on what they're supposed to focus on, you know, you can get there. Transformation is not impossible, right? right. You you can get there. And, and, and I think that, uh, again, people ask me all the time, you know, how long does it take, you know, if a company really wants to go from transactional to recurring and really be in that model, and, and, you know, they are hoping for an answer that's going to, you know, ha have the word quarters in it, right? You know, it's three quarters, right? And, and I say, look, you know, exemplar, if you just hit this full steam and you make all the right moves, three years, right? Yeah. Probably five, right? One of the things I like to say to people is every day in the transformation zone is a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. But it is. It just is. <laughs> and so, and so, the faster you can get through this zone, the better. Absolutely. And by the way, you know, when you do get through, I mean, all is forgiven. I mean, you look at Microsoft stock price since, since they got Azure going. Absolutely. It's like where were you yeah. all my life? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, no. The, I mean, and that's another good news story here for folks that are listening. Right? Is there are more and more examples of companies, you know, tech companies that were in traditional models that are in these new as a service models like Microsoft, like, you know, Adobe, like Autodesk, Palo Alto Networks is a really interesting one that's, on, you know, unfolding where we're not talking that they have, you know, 10% of revenue coming from the new stuff. I mean, it's now, you know, it is the business, right? And so there were more examples there. I think it gives people hope. Right, that this is, but this is doable. Uh, but again, it's not. It's not easy. Are there any other just observations? You know, uh, words of wisdom you give to companies that you know, in terms of applying this model, tactics of success that we haven't covered yet. Anything else you want to well, want to comment I, on? I, do, I think metrics really matter. So this, what you want to do again? I think maybe they, I'm just going to restate the principle of keep the disruptive separate from the continuous. So, for example, in our in our financial reporting never blend metrics from the two zones because all you'll do is make your performance zone look weaker and your incubation zone look slower. Right. This is hard in a, when you're a public company and you're reporting things out, you, you, you have to be very conservative about how you report out your stuff. So that's fine. So I wouldn't change that, but I would change it with narrative and I would change it with anecdotal examples. 
and I would change it with, with, with overlay metrics. I would also use market segmentation metrics. I would say, you know, we think that with this particular industry or this particular set of use cases, and let me show you what our growth rates are. And by the way, when you do it in earnings call number one, you should come back to it in earnings call number two, three, or Absolutely. four. Absolutely. Right. So you get people say, oh, okay. Because I think more than anything else, if investors know you're being accountable to a reasonable set of metrics, they will give you more of the benefit of the doubt. Yep. It's when they it's when they don't see what you're really doing that they begin to say, well, maybe you don't know what you're really doing. Well, and I think one, you know, since you put this on the table here with with, with investors and, and the analysts, because I, you know, read through a lot of the transcripts from these earning calls as companies are going through this, right? To study again how they're communicating, et cetera. And I think what's interesting is is two things. Number one, what you said, I mean. Creating the narrative and being consistent is so key. Shine a bright light on the new, talk about that consistently, right? And this is what our future is going to be. But I think the other observation is really, you know, the executive team has got to educate and bring those analysts along because a lot of these analysts, right, if they've been following a sector for the last you know, decade, they are wired in the old model of pushing boxes. That's what they know. They don't, they're not experts in consumption-based pricing models or as a service or whatever. So as the executive team, you've got to onboard that and you've got to educate them on why these are the right metrics and why this is the future of success and bring them along on that journey. And, and by the way, there'll be analysts who get it. Now they're early adopters and they're pragmatists and they're right, right. And the analysts too, right? Same, right? So you gotta work first of all with the people who believe what you believe. <laughs> but right, you have to bring yeah. them along and say, and one of the ways you can also say it. Is, is the, I mean, if you can step back from your company's performance and say, look, you know, there are these trends going on in the world right now. And we talk about digital transformation or whatever. We believe that digital transformation is going to re-engineer every business process on the planet in the, in the current decade. You think, well, how could it not? I mean, sort of. So then we think we have to participate mm -hmm. in that. Well, of course you do. Okay, we think our current business model actually holds us back from participating in that. Oh, oh, fooey, <laughs> or words to that effect. And by the way, the value investors, when they hear that argument laid out, sell your stock because they're going, I understand exactly what yeah. you're saying. That's not my game. I'm not playing that game. But the growth investor can be recruited, right. but it takes yeah. work to your point. It, yep, it does. It does. Absolutely. Well, I, we've taken up a lot of your time and, and I want to thank you so much for, for spending the time with us today and for continuing that, you know, just help technology companies succeed, right? In this ever-changing industry of ours. I, well, that's what you and I, that's why what, what you and I get up every morning. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is, it is a joy. It really is a joy to work with these companies. And uh, so I like to end every episode with a big question. So here, my, here's my big question for the audience. If you are a traditional technology provider, and you're now you're standing up you know, new as a service offers, you are facing a business model transformation. And if you're facing a business model transformation, you need an organizational structure to support that transformation. So the big question you have to ask yourself, can we succeed a business model transformation with our current organizational structure? Thanks for listening, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.